may the Lord make our time together a glory to him and profitable for us. May our eyes see and may our ears hear that we might become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're going to be starting today in Isaiah chapter 43. Just a word about the song we just heard. I don't know what springs up in the mind of many when the idea or the, even the name Christian uh, is heard. Many would look at people who have ordered their lives in such a way that uh, they seem to reflect those things that God has declared are good. Some would base their relationship upon God having to do simply with the fact that they have kept his commandments. Some would look to the mode and the manner of their lives whereby they feel that their goodness would be respected by Almighty God. And everything I just said is a vanity. There is one thing that we look to whereby we might be made acceptable as children of Almighty God, as sons of God, and as those who would please him. And that is the acceptance that comes through the work and by, by the uh, by the payment in the work of Jesus Christ as he hung on a cross. Surely each of us will come to place our confidence in regard to our acceptance by a righteous God that the only thought in our mind would be that we cling to that cross whereby God poured out his wrath against the sins of all men 
and then declared those sins having come under judgment in Christ that those who would receive that grace, the grace that comes from the cross, and we would absolutely believe and know that we have been redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your wisdom, which, Lord God, is not man's wisdom. We recognize your wisdom in the manner in which you saved us. For we know that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God. And that it cannot be understood except that you, our Father, by your Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, and make us to know that redemption comes solely by the way of the cross of Jesus Christ. That covers the sins of all that were committed before the time of Christ. And it covers the sins that come since then and into our futures. For the only, the only truth that we can hang our hope on is thus saith the Lord, whosoever should believe that Jesus has paid our ransom, covered our sin, and cast it away as the, far as the east is from the west, that that one fact and that alone with no embellishment of human thought, that is where our hope lies. And that is where life begins. Thank you, Father. You are marvelous. You are wonderful. We desire, Lord God, to be counted worthy simply to lift your name. And we know that our praise, if it be true, comes from the comprehension of all that has just been said regarding the cross of Christ. Let us cling to that cross. Let us never forget for a moment 
that there our sins were put away and the love of God was placed on each one who believes because you have desired to love us all, Lord. And we love you back because you put that love in our hearts. We thank you so much. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're starting in Isaiah chapter 43 this morning. Remember that Isaiah can be broken into two major sections. One is, is chapters 1 through 39, corresponding to the, the number of books there are in the Old Testament, 39 books. 39 chapters. And that uh, starting with chapter uh, chapter 40 and chapters 40 through 66, we have another section that has an entirely different ring to it. And of course, how could it be such a coincidence that the last uh, 27 books or 27 chapters of Isaiah correspond to the 27 books of the New Testament. Do you think it just happened? I think not. Uh, I will tell you that probably more than any other Old Testament writing since 1850, the validity, the timing, the, uh, the character of the writing of Isaiah has been under great assault from those who have adopted and that, that all began, began in the late 1800s the adoption of a theology of rationalism, which pretty much denies the providence of God and denies the miracles of God and has overturned the faith of many and is 
uh, an abomination. And Isaiah has bore the brunt of, of those learned theologians who know nothing but that which they can attain through their intellect and they can be described as having no knowledge in the inner man of God, of his purposes, and of the story of the ages. They call themselves theologians. And they are but sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. What we're going to see through the majority portion of the remainder of Isaiah, rather than being filled as the early chapters were with uh, God, God's uh, displeasure spoken of by God regarding the lack of faith that Israel had demonstrated up until Isaiah's time, and we know it went past that. And so pretty much from the time of the giving of the law, there were just a very few bright spots in Israel's history whereby God did not hold his fiery judgment against them. For the Lord said they do always err in their hearts. And it seems as we're observers looking back at that nation and having in their traditions and their in the, the writings that the prophets had left them. Uh, there were many facts presented that ought to have sufficed to make them believe that God in his wisdom had a purpose for placing them under law. Unfortunately, they wanted to be lawless. They continually looked back at their, what they then considered their leisure in as slaves and 
Israel, or pardon me, in Egypt. When they were in the wilderness, they continually asked, complaining that they wanted to go back to that which they had when they were slaves. If you haven't thought of it, consider those who profess Christ, who are continually turning back to enjoy those fleshly pleasures of things they had before they came to the Lord Jesus. And we will see the heart of man in ourselves, even as it existed in the whole nation of Israel. And so the Lord encourages us to never stop growing in the truth. If we go to Second Peter, he tells us that we should continue to add to our faith, virtue, and knowledge, and understanding. Uh, and a promise is given that if we will do that, then we shall never stumble. But alas, most of us stumble somewhere along the line. I am afraid that there are many of such departures from the faith whereby the stumbling becomes permanent. Only God knows the hearts of such men and women. So starting out in Isaiah 43, we read these words. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Now I hope you get to the play on words. I mean, Jacob and Israel are the same person. Uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means a piece uh, uh, to have a prince among men. Whereas the word or the name Jacob meant that he was a, a thief and a swindler. Uh, but they're both the same person. Uh, and the 12 tribes of Israel descended from the sons of Jacob along with two of the sons of Joseph, which is another story. And the Lord said, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name and thou art mine. My friends, 
for every human being, there is going to be an there is going to be for each life one who claims the ownership of that life. You will recall in many cases that the Lord Jesus himself looked at the, uh, the people of Israel and particularly their leaders and said to them, you are under your father, the devil. All of those people that think they're free without God are subject and absolutely in the pocket of Satan himself. They're in a bondage uh, to Satan and to the sin that is associated with the fall of Adam. And they are not free. There is no such thing outside of Christ as freedom because it is nothing but bondage. Conversely, when we come to Christ, we are called to give up a claim on ourselves. And God is pleased to own us. And so we say with Paul, uh, I am a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the first of the story I've just told, those people who are slaves to Satan and slaves to sin do not know it. But we become bond servants to the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said that he was. And you read Romans 12, 1 and 2, and you'll certainly get the flavor of it there and many other places. The difference is the people that put themselves under the authority uh, as Christ as head and, and uh, as king in the case of the Israelites, then they became bond slaves of their own volition. They came, became bond slaves by acts of their own will. And we are continually called in the scripture. See, we are not made to become uh, servants of Christ uh, by some uh, spiritual power or pronouncement that he makes, what he wants is those who believe and say, I want to be the servant of Jesus Christ. That's how I will serve my God. Now, the beauty of that 
is that each one of us were created such that we become those servants. And it being a servant of Almighty God and in the Trinity, being a servant like that, whereby we have decided, like that old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Uh, in that, we find true freedom. How is that? Because the Spirit of God is free. And when he is joined with our spirit in a oneness, we are free to do exactly what we want. Because what we want is the will of God. You see that in Christ, in his walk in the earth. I don't think that he felt he was under some terrible bondage. He simply said, I come to do the will of him who sent me. And so in verse one of chapter 43, we find that we are not to be afraid for we have been redeemed by almighty God himself. Now that is what God has told Israel. Interesting, interestingly enough, this word redeemer in the Hebrew is goel. And that is the same term that was applied to Boaz in the book of Ruth. The word goel, goel means to be a kinsman redeemer. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is our goel. That means that he was, see, this is one reason that Jesus Christ had to have a body. He had to become flesh or he could not have been our kinsman redeemer. He is kinsman to us because we are all flesh as he was flesh as he walked in this world. Now let there be no mistake that when he ascended into heaven uh, and took up his place there, he was no longer having a body of flesh. As the word says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And with his body, he was able to be, as it were, a new Adam. Whereas Adam had failed, then Christ did it right. Now, I'd like, if you want to turn there, 
uh, go right ahead, but Romans 5, 15 through 21, which describes this idea that Christ was our kinsman redeemer. Romans 5, 15 through 21. Actually, I think I'm going to start with verse 12. And if you think the scripture is not a, a coherent, unified document, uh, it is filled with, from the beginning to the end, those statements that all fit exactly together. So verse 12, Romans 5, wherefore as by one man, sin entered the world, now that's Adam, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was not in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now what Paul, so you don't get confused. Those who sin against the law become what is referred to as transgressors. And they are responsible before God according to the law. They heap judgment on themselves. Those who were born before the law had, had according to Romans 1, had also a law, but not a Ten Commandments, but they had uh, something about the goodness and the truth of God uh, in their hearts that they, they could have followed after. And when they didn't, that also was sin. And so whether they were under the law or whether they were before the law, they were yet under judgment because they should have taken stock of that revelation that was presented. And so verse 14 in Romans 5, speaking from the time of Adam to Moses, that was when the law was passed down. Nevertheless, and this is what I just said, Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why? Because the people were judged according to the law of conscience. Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. What's that mean? Adam indeed did have a commandment from the Lord. Those coming after him until Moses did not. And you know what the commandment was. The commandment was 
that he could just about do anything he wanted in the garden, but he was not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. But that was a law. And many after him sinned based on conscience, and therefore it was not after the similitude of Adam's transgression. I hope you understand that. Who is the figure of him that was to come? Now, that's referring to Jesus Christ. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, that is, inheriting uh, the condemnation of uh, being born sinners and uh, acting so, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by the man Jesus Christ, who abounded unto many, and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. That is the judgment that came through Adam. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one much more, they which receive abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness shall pardon me, the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, he would be the kinsman redeemer. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, that's again Adam, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. And here's the conclusion. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That is, through Jesus Christ. Moreover, now you say, well, what's the purpose of the law? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, each of us should understand 
that, well, according to just, uh, I can just show you that according to Romans chapter three, we here now here is a scripture that tells us that god accounts to us you know before christ before the law the sin of adam was accounted to us and we behaved accordingly but in the same way, verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, which says, but now the righteousness of God. Okay, make sure what he's talking about, the righteousness of God. You know, if you're going to stand before God in judgment, you know how you have to stand there. You have to stand there with the very righteousness of God without spot, without blemish, not near the righteousness of God, not having made some progress towards the righteousness of God, but we have to stand there in the righteousness of God, and then we can have eternal fellowship with him. And so it says, but now the righteousness of God without law had nothing to do with law, okay, is manifested. That means it is made clear and demonstrated to anybody who wants to see. And it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. So there is nothing about the imputation of righteousness from the grace of God to those who believe that is contrary to what we find in the Old Testament writings. They all fit right together. Now, as some might question verse 21, Paul says it again. Even, and, and he tells us how we get that righteousness. Even the righteousness of God, and this is where it is, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And then Paul describes what we received there, being justified. That means being made right. That means having received the very righteousness of God, being justified, verse 24, freely by his grace through the redemption. There's the idea of the kinsman redeemer that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that is, sacrifice, um, uh, sacrifice for our sin, 
and that sacrifice is the satisfaction, the word propitiation has within its meaning the idea that when Christ died on that cross and God looked at him, knowing he died for the sins of the whole world, he was satisfied. Mm -hmm. To declare what? Our righteousness? No. To declare his righteousness. For what you and I have is not righteousness of our own. It is righteousness that is the gift of God. And that's why the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. And so to declare, I say at this time, the righteousness that he may be just. Now, I, I want you to think about this question. We are not now talking about us being just or right. We are talking about God being just. That means the righteous God of the universe is going to deal with sin in a way that is only fitting. Every sin must receive its due a penalty from Almighty God. Mm -hmm. And so, um, pardon me, whom God has set forth by propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just. Now, how is it just? How is it proper uh the, the proper application of justice, how did, was that brought into reality at the cross? Well, the justice is that by the work of the kinsman redeemer of the Goel, the, uh, the, the, condemnation and the wrath of God for the sins of all the kinsmen, that's us, because, you know, Christ had a body like us, and through that judgment being poured out on Christ, understand the entire wrath of God for all humanity, every sin, every thought, every misdeed, every act of pride, every jealous moment, uh, every time we lifted ourselves up, that sin God poured out its, the, the just penalty 
on Christ for the wages of sin is death. And so God was just in putting Christ on the cross. And according to verse 26, that he was also the justifier, that is, he was just, and he made us just of him which believeth in Jesus. And so God imputed the righteousness that was his, also Christ, also the Holy Spirit, all that righteousness which is one was placed to be ours. And in faith, we own it. We own it. Mm -hmm. I don't own it because I deserve it. Mm -hmm. I own it because God said it's a gift. And God paid the penalty for the sin. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, many people say that just can't be because it all goes against the law of Moses. I, I point your attention to verse 31 of Romans 3, where it says, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. What does that mean? Well, Paul said in another place in his epistle, Paul said, I through the law am made free from the law. Why? Because the law demanded judgment and that judgment occurred. And therefore, as I died in Christ, I became absolutely free from the law. God would not be just to make us pay for the sins that Christ has already paid for, would he? There's one more thing I want you to see in this passage. Because, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is in Isaiah 43, we're talking about a nation who is redeemed and restored. And I think even though people may not ask, they wonder what was the payment for the sins of everybody who lived in this earth before the cross of Jesus Christ? How do they get saved? What is the payment for their sin? And the answer is, 
the payment for their sin not only went forward from the cross to us, but it also, in as retroactive, it went back even to the first man, Adam. Now, is there a scripture that says that very specifically? Yes. And that is found again in Romans 3, verse 25. So if you want to know how Old Testament saints got saved, here it is. How do sins get washed away? And it says, verse 25, whom God, referring to Christ, set forth to be a propitiation or the satisfaction through faith in his blood to do what? To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What you need to understand is that the only method of forgiveness of sin in the universe is through Jesus Christ. And God, of course, being outside of time, and God, as he raised up Adam and all the human beings after him, that the Lord... Uh, established, if you were, an eternal covenant whereby all those who would trust God would be justified because God would provide himself a sacrifice for sin. I don't know if you remember or not, when, uh, when Isaac, who was probably close to 20 years old, when Isaac was brought by Abraham up on Mount Moriah, that is the place where the temple was to be built, but just a, it's just a thicket up there, and Abraham brought Isaac there because God demanded that he sacrifice Isaac. And when he was just ready to plunge the knife into the heart of his son, And Isaac said, Father, here is the slab of the altar. Here is the wood. Where is the sacrifice? This is by the faith of Abraham. Abraham said, quote, God I want you to notice how this is stated. God will provide himself a sacrifice. I think the words are for purpose. 
It doesn't say that God will provide, you know, a meaningful sacrifice. It was looking forward to the real sacrifice that we looked forward to for so many years, that it was God. You understand that? God was hung on that cross. And he himself bore the wrath for our sins. Oh, marvelous, everlasting, overpowering love of God. Does he not love you? Will he, who gave himself a sacrifice for sin, will he not freely give you all good things? And of course, we know the answer to that. Now I'm turning, I think I'm going to have Alice play a song for us, and then I'll finish up. Ah. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, my friends, particularly those of us who have, you know, more water behind us than in front of us. <laughs> Each of us, no doubt, have had times when we were tempted by a thought that did not come from the spirit. And that thought was, oh, I have been unfaithful to the Lord in many things. I have, and, and we might we might remember specific outward tangible sins. It may be that we realize that we were just complacent. We may for a time have tried to separate ourselves from the love of God, which is not possible by the way, if you're his. And we have wondered, how is it that God can continue to call me back to himself, even as the prodigal son, dress me with a purple robe, place a ring on my finger, and throw a feast? And the answer is, consider Israel. Mm -hmm. For there was, there's never been a nation who has tested the faithfulness of God regarding his first promises. I mean, God goes clear back to what he told Abraham and even tells us that his thinking regarding bringing Israel uh, to fulfill all the wonderful promises he has made to them. He remembers that he made them to Abraham. He remembers he made them to the patriarchs. But Israel was a stiff-necked and rebellious person or nation. Many of us may be stiff-necked and rebellious people. But the Lord saves us 
primarily, yes, he loves us, but primarily for his own namesake. Yeah. He says here in chapter 43, verse 2, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. My friends, one way or the other, it never comes back to the degree of the failures that we have, but it comes back to the person who cannot deny himself and who saves us for his namesake. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee, since thou was precious in my sight. Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy, for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. I'm moving down to verse 12 and 43 in chapter 43. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Well, there are many in Christendom today that take the scriptures we've read this morning and taken 10,000 other scriptures and cast them away and believe that only the church of Jesus Christ will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, listen to what James had to say. Now, I'm going to be reading from 
Acts chapter 15. And if you don't know this, Acts chapter 15 is the record during the time of the early church when the Jews were insisting that the Christians be circumcised and follow after the Jewish traditions. It's kind of interesting that what the Jews did in regard to trying to deny the church, now the church is trying to deny the Jews. Isn't that ironic? Listen to what James says here. And after they had held their peace, that's because they're at a conference and everybody's got something to say. But after they all kind of settled down, James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon, that is Peter, had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, what he's referring to is Peter's ministry in the book of Acts to the house of Cornelius. That was the first time that Christianity uh, came to the Gentile. For several years before that, only Jews became Christians. But it was a big deal when God called Peter to go to the house of Cornelius and deliver the gospel. The gospel was received and now the Jews had to deal with the Gentiles becoming believers. And so he says, at the first it visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people. Now, this is a separate people, isn't it? To take out a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, after this, this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. Now, what is that? That's the temple. That is material. That is not uh, a spiritual thing. He's going to build a liberal taber a literal tabernacle, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Why? That the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, knowing unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. 
And again, I read in the book of Amos, the minor prophet, little Amos, verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches whereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Well, there is a passage in Romans which says, Behold the goodness and the severity of God on those who send against him severity, upon those who call on his name, the goodness. And so my friends, Isaiah, who started out speaking words of judgment, now speaks the kind words of redemption for all of Israel and then we learn that that redemption by the wisdom of God and the grace of God was to include you and me, the Gentiles. Is God not absolutely steadfast and all-powerful in bringing you and I to fruition. If he loved Israel so, and they were referred to as the wife of Jehovah, we the bride of Christ and the sons of God, even as Christ is the son, we have a God who loves us with an unbounding love. And he will by no means lose one of us. And so, I take great comfort in what the Old Testament teaches me about the ways of God. And his ways are always the same. And heaven and earth will pass away, but his Grace and love towards us and power will never 
pass away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have provided for us and for all those who look for your appearing. You have provided for us life, eternal life. You have promised us that you will destroy all the evil and that we can be fulfilled for the purpose for which we are made in eternity without end. Dear God, what is this compared to what the world is that we see today. You will do this. We will trust you. For we come to you praising your precious name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.